3. John chapter 3, as we continue looking at John's gospel and this wonderful third chapter uh, in the book of John. John chapter 3. And today we want to look at the great need for humility. The great need for humility. In uh, the Peanuts cartoon, Linus tells Charlie Brown, when I get big, I'm going to be a humble little country doctor. I'm going to live in the city, you see, and every morning I'll get up, climb into my sports car, and zoom into the country. And then I'll start healing people. I'll heal people from miles around. And then in the last frame, he exclaims, I'll be a world-famous, humble little country doctor. Well, the cartoonist there, Charles Schultz, I think was poking a bit of fun on how difficult it is for us to be humble. Uh, We may start out with a goal of being humble, little whatever, and before we know it, we're turned into being a world-famous, humble little whatever. You know, pride is arguably the most deadly and evil of all sins because it's at the root of all other sins. Pride was probably Satan's original sin when he said, I will be like the Most High in Isaiah chapter 14, verse 14. Pride was the bait that Satan used to tempt Eve when he set aside what God had said and assured her that if she ate of the forbidden fruit, she would be like God. Whenever I sin, I am arrogantly asserting that I know better than God and I know what's best for me. And so as Christians, we must certainly battle pride and grow in humility. If you think you've attained any measure of humility, you've got to be on guard against being proud of your humility. If anyone easily could fall into a trap of pride, I think it would be John the Baptist. Who else in human history, apart from Jesus himself, could claim to have been filled with the Holy Spirit while still in his mother's womb? As it tells us in Luke 1 and verse 15. No one else in human history had the important role of being the forerunner of the Messiah. John enjoyed immediate popular success as all Jerusalem, Judea, and those surrounding areas were going out to him in the wilderness. They were confessing their sins and they were being baptized. Even Jesus testified that John, uh, of John, that he was the greatest man in human history. All these things would have fed the pride of this young prophet barely in his 30s. And yet in our text, John gives his disciples and us a basic lesson in humility. In the face of Jesus' growing popularity, his own waning popularity, John gives us a one-liner to live on. He must increase, but I must decrease. He must increase, but I must decrease. These words are really a kind of a convenient outline for John chapter 3, verse 22 through 36. I must decrease really is summing up what's in verses 22 through 30. And he must increase sums up verses 31 through 36. 
And so to the extent that John's motto is true of us, we are to be growing in humility. Now the story begins with these two thriving ministries taking place very close to one another. Jesus departed from Jerusalem after the conversation with Nicodemus to the surrounding area of Judea. And for the first time in the New Testament, record is made of people being baptized unto Jesus. John chapter 4, verse 2 makes it clear that Jesus himself did not baptize. Rather, his disciples did the baptizing. But here you have the first record of Christian baptism. A key concept in understanding this principle of baptism is that of identification. Those who received John's message in part were identifying and receiving the message. Those who were baptized by Jesus' disciples were willing to identify with him, making a public testimony that they had received him as their Savior. And so the, the apostle adds the comment there in verse 24 that John had not yet been thrown into prison because he knew that his readers would have read Mark's gospel, no doubt, which makes it seem that Jesus' ministry began after John the Baptist was arrested. But the Apostle John wants us to know that the events that recorded here happened before he was put in prison. So at this time, at this juncture, you find the word then in verse 25. Then, indicating there's a transition to something new. John reports a dispute or a discussion that arose between John's disciples and some of the Jews. And this discussion was about purification. The apostle does not give us really any further clarification, so we can only guess at the nature of the discussion, but probably it had to do with whether John's baptism was superior to the Jewish rites of purification. John had mentioned those Jewish rites with the water pots at the wedding where Jesus had turned the water into wine, in chapter 2. But in the present context, Jesus is the bridegroom, we read there in verse 29. And he comes to bring people into a joyous relationship to himself. He's not here to haggle over Jewish ceremonies. It's not an outward Jewish ceremony that's purifying a person's heart, but rather it's the new birth, a new birth from above. And so John may want us to see here that Jesus' ministry goes beyond the ceremonial legalism of Judaism. But at any rate, the de debate between John's disciples and this Jew may have included the Jews' comment that Baptist, the Baptist, John the Baptist's ministry was being overshadowed by Jesus' growing ministry. And this led to John's disciples to come to him with their concern. Find that in verse 26. And they came unto John and said, Rabbi, he that was with thee beyond Jordan, to whom thou bearest witness, behold, the same baptizeth, and all men come unto him. Their exaggeration, you know, how we do that sometimes, it's all come to him. <laughs> you know, every time it happens this way, we exaggerate from time to time, don't we? And there was no doubt because of this exaggeration, some jealousy on the part of these disciples against Jesus' growing ministry. And this kind of sets the stage for John's reply 
here in verses 27 through 30. It's a great lesson in humility. Humility stems from understanding who God is and who we are. And so John the Baptist clearly understood God's sovereignty, who Jesus is, and who he, John, was. He didn't have to have inflated views of himself. He wasn't out to build his self-esteem or to promote his own ministry or his reputation. His aim was to exalt Jesus. He found great joy in that role of handing off the bride to the bridegroom. So first of all, in this lesson, we must understand who God is. And we see this both with reference to John's view of the Father and his view of Jesus Christ. We see that humility stems from understanding, first of all, God is absolutely sovereign. John replies to his disciples' worried report, A man can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven. And that truth applies to all spiritual matters, including our salvation. As Jesus emphasizes in John 6.65, and he said, Therefore said I unto you that no man can come unto me except it be given unto him of my Father. But here was a special reference to our ministries and the relative fruitfulness of those ministries. He's saying that his role as forerunner was given to him by God and he must stay within that role. His words also apply to Jesus. Any popularity or success that he enjoyed in the ministry came not because of him, but because of his father. Paul applies this to us as gifted members of the body of Christ. In 1 Corinthians 12, he says, Now there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are differences of administrations, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of operations, but it is the same God which worketh all in all. And then he adds in verse 11, But all these worketh that one in the selfsame Spirit divideth to every man severally as he will. In other words, God is the one who gives the spiritual gifts the ministries, and the results according to his sovereign will. And we need to recognize that. Humility stems from recognizing that it's God's prerogative as God and bow before him in his sovereign will. Also, humility comes from understanding who Jesus, that Jesus is the Lord in Christ. In verse 28 John reminds his disciples, and he said, I am not the Christ, but I am sent before him. Clearly, John knew that Jesus was the Christ, the promised Messiah. Then in verse 29, he uses an illustration from the Jewish wedding. He says, "In He that hath the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom, which standeth and heareth him, rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. And this my joy, therefore, is fulfilled. And John knew that Jesus was the promised bridegroom, and that the pride, the bride belongs to him. John's role was that of a friend of the bridegroom. You know, like the best man in a wedding. His role was to take the bride to the bridegroom and then get out of the way. The focus of the wedding was not on the best man, but on the bridegroom and the bride. Now, in the Old Testament, Jehovah is pictured as the bridegroom or the husband of Israel as his bride. 
For example, in Isaiah 62, or actually Isaiah 54, in verse 5, the Lord tells Israel, For thy maker is thine husband, and the Lord of hosts is is his name, and thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, the God of the whole earth, shall he be called. In Isaiah 62, 5, he declares, As the bridegroom rejoiceth over the bride, so shall thy God rejoice over thee. In the book of Hosea, Hosea chapter 2, verse 16, the Lord tells Israel that in the future thou shalt call me Ishai. That's translated husband in verse 7. And he promises in verse 19, and I will betroth thee unto me forever. Jesus used this analogy of himself when he explained to some of John's disciples why Jesus' disciples did not fast in Matthew chapter 9. He said there, can the children of the bride chamber mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, but the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken from them, and then shall they fast. So if Jehovah is Israel's bridegroom in the Old Testament, and John the Baptist proclaims Jesus as Israel's bridegroom here, there's an affirmation here that Jesus is Jehovah. Jesus is God. Whether or not John the Baptist put the two halves of this equation together, it is evident that Apostle John, through the Holy Spirit, wants us to put them together. If God is the bridegroom and Jesus is the bridegroom, then Jesus is God. And so the lesson in humility for us is humility stems from knowing who God is, knowing who Jesus is. The clearer our vision of this, his majesty and greatness and power and glory, the more we will be humbled in his presence. You realize how little you are in his holy presence. And that's the second lesson that John the Baptist teaches us here. Understand who we are. Certain that man never achieves a clear knowledge of himself unless he first looks upon God's face, and then descends from contemplating him to scrutinizing himself. Pride is a characteristic in us all and cannot be dealt with until we look to the Lord. Now here in our text, we see that John was clear about who he was in the presence of Christ. He says, I am not the Christ. Now, people were probably wondering if John was the Christ when he emphatically denied, I am not the Christ. But now he reminds his disciples of what he had repeatedly said. He said, ye yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I am sent before him. And you might think, well, there's not much danger that I'm going to start thinking that I'm the Christ. You know, One of the most basic lessons we all have to learn and we have to learn again and again is that God is God and I am not God. And yet sometimes we act like we're God, don't we? When things don't go the way I want them to go, I have to learn to bow and acknowledge God, you're God, I'm not God. And also, although I've never had to really deal with it, probably never will, but when your ministry is popular, you've got crowds of people thronging to hear, you know, you got to keep in mind, I'm not the Christ. I'm just his servant. 
I'm just here to point people to Jesus. So I am not the Christ. I am not God. You're not God. And I think that's a very important lesson in humility. Secondly, everything is for his purpose and his glory. I think this comes from the comment in verse 27. A man can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven. John recognized that his unique role in history was not something that he had achieved by his own brilliance or his own hard work. Rather, God had graciously graciously given it to him so that he could point people to Jesus. He had nothing to do with anything good in John. He had everything to do with God's sovereign, gracious purpose for John. You know, this is a time of the year where a lot of young people are graduating. Graduating from college, from high school. They're going across the stage. They're, earning, they're getting their degrees. They're getting uh, honors for their grades and so forth. It's really easy to say, hey, look what I did. Boy, I really, I really achieved something. I got a, a, a high school degree. I got a, a, a bachelor's degree. I got a doctorate, you know. I've seen all kinds of uh, young people graduating uh, in, the, in these days. But everything has to do with God's sovereign, gracious purpose. The Apostle Paul reminded the arrogant Corinthians, For who maketh thee to differ from another? And what hast thou that thou didst not receive? Now, if thou didst receive it, why dost thou glory as if thou hast not received it? Think of Pilate frustrated with Jesus, that Jesus would not answer him, and he told Jesus that he had the authority to either release him or crucify him. And, of course, what Jesus say? He said, thou couldst have no power at all against me except it given thee from above. And this is an important lesson. Something you and I must keep in mind at all times. All of my gifts, all of my abilities, all my opportunities come from God by grace alone. Everything. Do I have a sound mind? Well, some may question that, but... If I do have a sound mind, it comes from God. It came from God. He wants me to use it for his glory, for his purpose. Do I have money? Not much. But what I have, it came from God. He wants me to use it for his purpose, for his glory. Do I have a ministry or a place of service? Yes, that too came from God. He wants me to use it for his purpose, for his glory. John knew that he was the forerunner of the Messiah. He sought to fulfill the ministry which God had given to him. John continually preached and baptized even as he saw his influence waning in comparison to Jesus' ministry. And the point is that humility does not mean that we slack off. And we blame our, blame our lack of results on God's sovereignty. We should seek to use to the fullest what God has given to us and what he has entrusted to us to the best of our ability and give him the glory for any results. And so I am not the Christ. Everything is for his purpose and his glory. And when we, we come to a proper 
definition of success here. I think there are a couple of things here that we, we, we should note that success is not the largest following. Jesus' disciples were concerned because the numbers of his following were going down, while the numbers of following Jesus were going up. Oh my goodness. Our numbers are dwindling. Their numbers are going up. John didn't seem to be doing anything to correct the situation. He didn't put into place an attendance campaign. He didn't uh, say, well, you know what we got to do is we've got to We've got to attract some people here. We've got to get the uh, the latest band in here so we can get some people, uh, you know, joining with us. We've got to get some, maybe a, a comedian, make everybody laugh and feel good. When you talk to John about their concerns, he just says that their cause for concern was his cause for great joy. John wasn't trying to build a following for John. He was trying to build a following for Jesus. That ought to be our desire too. Sometimes a man's disciples are more zealous for his reputation than he is. And on one occasion when the Spirit came on two young men in the camp of Israel, you remember, so that they prophesied Joshua, who was Moses' helper, he said in Numbers chapter 11, verse 28, And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of Joseph, one of his young men answered and said, My Lord Moses, forbid them. But Moses replied, and Moses said unto him, Envious thou for my sake? Would God that all the Lord's people were prophets, and that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. Similar thing happened when the Apostle John saw someone casting out demons in Jesus' name, tried to prevent him, and because he wasn't part of their group. But Jesus replied, Forbid them not, for there is no man which shall do a miracle in my name that can lightly speak evil of me. And again, I think the lesson is here, we're not in competition with other churches or ministries. If they're preaching the gospel, they're teaching God's word, we're actually on the same team. We can rejoice that God's work is prospering even if our work is not as large as another work. Our responsibility is to be faithful with what God has given us to do. And then notice here, the proper definition of success is to exalt Christ and help others do the same. John's aim and his joy was to bring the bride to the bridegroom. And by the way, you probably don't think that John the Baptist was a joyful man. Uh, you know, he was an austere prophet who thundered, Oh, generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Doesn't sound like a really uh, um, joyful person, does he? said that in Matthew 3, 7. He was angry when the religious hypocrites did not follow Jesus. But you know what? He was full of joy when he heard the bridegroom's voice. And he would bring the bride to him. And if people followed after Jesus, then John's purpose was fulfilled. His joy was full. This quote from Robert Murray McShane. He said, I see a man cannot be a faithful minister until he preaches Christ for Christ's sake. 
until he gives up striving to attract people to himself and seeks only to attract them to Christ. We always need to keep that in mind. It's all about the bridegroom and not at all about the best man. We don't come to the wedding to see the best man. I mean, we're thankful for the best man, but we don't come to the wedding to see him. He must increase, but I must decrease. And then we come to my role in God's program is temporary. You know what? We need to realize that we are expendable. Some people don't like to hear that. Our role in God's program is temporary. And that's very clear, I believe, in this 30th verse where he says, He must increase, but I must decrease. Like the morning star, John was fading from view as the sun rose in the sky. John's being expendable, also implicit in the parenthetical comment there, for John was not yet cast in prison because, see, he ended up in prison. His ministry would be done. Over. When you get thrown in prison, it's, it's easy to wonder, oh, is God's, what about God's sovereignty? What about my, my role in his plan? John himself began to wonder as he was sent to prison. He says, was I mistaken? Is Jesus really the Christ? And so he sent some disciples to ask Jesus in Matthew 11, art thou he that should come or do we look for another? In other words, if you're the Messiah, why don't you get your forerunner out of this miserable jail? What did Jesus say? Well, in Matthew 11, 4, he says, Go and show John again those things which ye do hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he, whosoever shall not be offended in me. I think it's important for us to remember that being a faithful servant of the Lord does not guarantee a trouble-free life. John the Baptist was faithful. He was God's God-appointed forerunner of the Messiah. He had been thrown into prison. Eventually, he had his head cut off. We aren't guaranteed long lives. We're not guaranteed impressive results in our ministries. The Lord could take me out of the picture today. His work would go right on according to his plan. He doesn't owe me anything. He doesn't owe you anything. But you know what? It should be our great joy if he uses us in some way to exalt Christ and bring others to exalt him too. It was Andrew Murray who said this, Humility, the place of the entire dependence on God, is from the very nature of things the first duty and the highest virtue of the creature and the root of every virtue. And so pride, or the loss of this humility, is the root of every sin and evil. I wonder this morning, are you working at growing in humility? Or are you working at growing in pride, building yourself up, saying, hey, look at me. Look what I'm doing for God. 
Or are you pouring contempt on all your pride, as Isaac Watts' line in When I Survey the Wonders Cross says? If I'm growing in humility, Christ is increasing and I am decreasing. If I'm growing in pride, self is increasing and Christ is decreasing. I think we need to take verse 30 and look at that every day. When we get up in the morning, he must increase and I must decrease. Put it on your refrigerator. Put it on your, on your dashboard of your car. Put it on any place. Remind yourself of that on a daily basis. He must increase. I must decrease. I think that's the lesson John would have us to learn from this passage this morning. Let's pray. Father, in